Hi there, folks, and welcome or welcome back to Nippon Trading International's Japan Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Ziv Nakajima, again, and this podcast is brought to you, among others, by Emil Gorgis of realestate.jp. He's a Tokyo real estate agent who specializes in serving international or mixed nationality families who are looking for the perfect family home. So Emil's an Australian, he's been living here in Japan for over two decades now, and for about half of that time he's been buying, selling, and managing real estate properties in Tokyo on behalf of his own family and a great many happy clients. And he also acts as a mortgage broker on behalf of his clients. So he's got dedicated loan officers in many of the Japanese mega banks. And if you're a regular listener of the podcast, you probably already know him from our JREP, the Japan Real Estate Experts Panel Sessions which means that you're already aware of the fact that the man is an absolute fountain of wisdom on all things related to real estate in Japan, and in particular to family homes, the greater Tokyo metropolitan area, and mortgages. And most importantly, he's incredibly generous with his time and advice, which he's more than happy to provide at no cost or commitment to anyone asking. So if you've been thinking about buying your home in Tokyo, but you've been sitting on the fence for a while, or you just wanna have a chat in English with a real expert, Drop him a line on sales at realestate.jp. Hit him up today and start exploring your options. All right, so first and foremost, huge thank you to everyone who joined the inaugural Japan Real Estate Summit last Saturday in Shibuda, Shibauda House in Tokyo. It was every bit as amazing as we expected and more. The venue, the speakers, uh, the media and technical team. Big shout out to Alex and Mitch. You guys rock. But above all to you, the participants, both in the room and online. We had a full house as expected uh, at the venue and talk about an engaged audience. You were asking razor sharp questions. Um, talking shop during the official talks, during the breaks and especially at the final panel session. Can't wait to share all of these recordings and, of course, the photos and videos with you in a couple of weeks. It was an absolute thrill to be able to be part of this. And all of us on the JREP team, Emil, Tracy, Blanca, Matt, and myself, are really fortunate to have such an amazing band of Japan property enthusiasts uh, such as yourselves to jam with. So, yes, huge thank you from all of us, both on the stage and in the media booth. You're the reason we do what we do, and we're fortunate to have you with us on this journey. Okay, so before I get too emotional, uh, let's get down to business. Uh, today's episode is a second conversation with Will, our new client from Taiwan, who you may have heard me speaking with here on the podcast about a month ago. We spoke to him first when he was first scoping out his options to enter the Japanese property market with a first-time investment, as well as trying to find out a bit more information about other options to invest in the country. And in this second session with him, a couple of months afterwards, we drilled down a bit deeper into portfolio structuring and asset profiles. We talk about old versus young, the potential for developer buyouts and how it works in Japan, which, spoiler, isn't really as attractive uh, as a prospect as prospect as it is in many other countries. Um, structured depreciation, both on paper for tax purposes and practically on the ground, as far as maintenance and profitability are concerned. Um, the unique challenges of investing in Hokkaido or some of Japan's other northern districts where it can snow up to about half the year. What does this do to properties physically and what effect does it have on tenancies? And then we wrap up by drilling down to practicalities and logistics. What working with us at NTI involves, how we onboard clients. Uh, we talk about remitting funds into and out of Japan, the types of investment properties that one can purchase with these funds. So let's say 10 million yen, uh, which is less than 100,000 US. What are these properties like? Where in Japan would they be located and where to find them? 
And we even riff a bit about what it's like, what it might be like, I've never done it myself, to work in a typical Japanese corporate environment. So a really nice, deep, uh, kind of nerdy drive into some of the more intricate aspects of investing in Japanese real estate. I trust you'll enjoy the conversation and I'll see you again on the other side. Okay, so let me just scroll down through your email now. Um, so you're asking, let's take them one at a time. Uh, building redevelopment, how does it work in Japan? Does it occur often? It's a great thing in Taiwan. Yeah, it's a great thing in many countries, but in Japan, unfortunately, because most of the unit owners are not really professional investors. I mean, mm -hmm. People who own property in Japan are not really thinking about it in an investment perspective. It's not as popular of a topic here as it is in other countries. So what that does is it creates landlords or owners of units who are not really investment savvy. So it makes it very easy for the developers to come in with all kinds of gray area scare tactics and tell them that they have to sell really quick because the building's getting old and they're going to lose all their money if they don't sell immediately and they just apply pressure until they end up buying. So they'll buy the first few units at market price, which gives them access to the owner union and gives them a voting right or a few voting rights on the owner union meetings. And then they keep applying pressure until they end up getting the whole building at maybe, maybe kind of the price that you bought it, not much more than that, right? Mm -hmm. And if it's a small building, they can offer units in the new complex when they build it, if the land plot allows for it. But in Japan, a lot of the time, you're going to be able to only build the same size structure or smaller. Mm. Because zoning regulations um, become more strict over the years. So in the cases, we haven't had too many cases, I think two or three properties, but in the cases where we've been involved, there was no big profit. The only profit there was just whatever rental income was accrued from purchase until sale. Oh, okay. Unfortunately. So um, it's not a deal. It's not something that you should be banking on as a strategy, definitely. So the, they don't get, uh, so they don't exactly get into cooperation with uh, landlords. To read, oh yeah, because they can't build higher. Yeah, not really. They can't really. Mm. I mean, it's not worth it for them. They have to try to get it as cheaply as they can, and this is what they do. And they also have. They take their time. We, we've had them working on buildings that we've had units in for three, four, five years, and until they finally, you know, made the pendulum swing over to their side and just purchased it. So, well, it, at least they purchased it back at uh, about the same price. Yeah, at the initial price. So yeah. About the same. Yeah. I mean, it's not, you know, it's not going to be a major loss. The only occasion where it might be is if this happens, you know, within a year or two after you purchased and you haven't had mm. enough time to accrue rental income, um, which is why we normally aim for, if you're being, buying individual units in a co-owned block, we normally recommend to aim for 30 years and younger. So that gives you about 10 years before that might start happening. Oh, okay. Yeah. And then your second question, what happens if a reinforced concrete building life is expiring? Um, they don't really officially expire. They're, they have a lifespan from a tax depreciation perspective, which is 47 years. So after that period, there's no more depreciation in them from a tax perspective, but they're still, especially if they're central and the big buildings, they'll, they'll just keep on getting renovated and repaired as long as they're cash cows and they're generating income for everyone, everyone's in the same boat and they're all like, we've got buildings that are 
I think 50 years old is the oldest one that we've got custom mm-hmm. units in. And that's being very, very well maintained. It's actually a lot better in quality than it is than some of the newer buildings that we've been servicing. So as long as the building is in an attractive location and generating income, there's no really life expiry. It just keeps on getting renovated. Okay, that explains a lot. Yep. So next question. Um, Sapporo units, winter maintenance for reinforced concrete. Um, It's not really a matter of concrete or wood. Obviously, wood carries more maintenance. Concrete, not specifically more in colder areas than hot areas. But the kind of maintenance you're looking at in a colder country is um, heating equipment tends to break down more frequently. Mm. Pipes can freeze over. Um, You need to, if you own the entire structure, whether it's a house or a small building, you need to take care of um, snow shoveling off the roof a few times a year. Um, Otherwise, the other real expense with winter areas is that the vacancies are longer. If you happen to get a vacancy during the winter, because people don't like to move around as much when it's snowing, it could stand vacant for four, five, six months. Oh, as opposed to two, three, four months in other locations. So it all adds up with tiny little extra expenses so that we aim, if you're looking at Sapporo or other cold places, then we would simply be aiming for a higher yield on purchase mm-hmm. just to account for those extra expenses that we're going to have okay. for our investment life cycle. Yeah. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Oh, Okay. Um, OFX. OFX is a currency exchange service similar to WISE. Used to be known as TransferWISE. Now they're called WISE. They're the Mm -hmm. most popular one. Um, We prefer OFX. We've been with them for about a decade. We prefer to work with them because, number one, we've got a dedicated corporate account manager. So if there's any... For example, a lot more often that you'd think people book a deal with an extra zero by mistake, for example... Oh, yeah. Then obviously they can't, or, or they might choose dollars instead of yens, and suddenly they have to transfer a million dollars instead of a million yen. <laughs> and obviously, when that happens, they need to cancel or amend the deal. Mm-hmm. No effects that's possible. So we just reach out to our account manager and they cancel the deal. They let us book it again. When we had customers who had that issue with Wise and some of the more common ones, there's no real person to talk to there. So you yeah. just get a default response from an email account that says, I'm sorry, you can cancel the deal, but we're going to have to charge you the fee anyway. Yeah. So we feel more... Also, WISE are limited to 1 million yen transfers. Oh. So if you're buying a property that's, let's say, 10 million yen, that'll be 10 times the receiving and sending bank charges. So it ends up not being Mm -hmm. very attractive on the rates front. We would normally recommend to use WISE or PayPal for small amounts and OFX. Um, I think they got another big competitor called Compass, um, which we recommend using those for bigger uh, bigger transfers. Well, thankfully, my, uh, my year mark is not that big, so yeah. OFX should suffice. Yeah. Okay, and then list of recommendations before the Tokyo trip office life um natalia is working from home oh okay and we don't have an office in tokyo our office is in fukuoka okay um so uh we might not be the best channel for also our office is not very typical japanese uh, office it's very international and hectic and um 
people laugh and smile and go in and out at different times. So I don't think it'll give you a real reflection of what the Japanese company office life is like. <laughs> Sorry about that. But I can, I can try to reach out some people, maybe organize some tours. Um, I'm not sure. Most of my friends in Tokyo are either business owners themselves or they work for international companies. So I'm not sure if I've got any contacts there. Um, I'll see what I can do. Oh, no, I was, I was just, <laughs> just seeing if, uh, if it's by chance, if it's possible. So are you going to move to Tokyo and then work for a Japanese company? Is that the plan? Oh, no, no, no. It's just uh, I've always been interested in different countries and their cultures. Uh, and then it's just usually these small quirks, small things, which makes uh, the whole business life very interesting. I think the or, best way to get an uh, insider's view is maybe to try and um, if you just go out to some bars or izakayas when you're here, you're mm -hmm. definitely, or even hostess bars, you're definitely going to run across some Japanese uh, salarymen. Yes. Uh, if you get them drunk, they'll tell you all you need to know about life in the Japanese office. I think it's easy. <laughs> I'll try that. I'll try they that. They love talking about it. They are complaining about it more like, but yeah. Well. Uh, complaints are pure honesty, right? Yep. <laughs> Just more negative. <laughs> yep. And the last uh, item you've mentioned, thinking of earmarking a budget for around 10 million yen. So that, that would get you in something in any city you want. Even in Tokyo, you can find stuff for 10 million yen and under. They're going to be obviously smaller and older than they would be in other cities, but mm -hmm. it is doable. We've had customers purchase in Tokyo for 6, 8 million, 10 million yen, so... They're definitely out there. Okay, great, great. Uh, that answers the most important one about uh, building redevelopment. And I'm pretty much uh, almost done with my data analytics. So I'm like... We interrupt this broadcast to tell you about Tokyo Family Stays. They're a short-term rentals company in Tokyo, and they offer a home away from home experience, which is just perfect for remote working, quarantining, if that's still a thing, or if you just need somewhere quiet to get away from the world. They offer a variety of options for families, corporate relocations, or even if you're simply transitioning between homes in Tokyo. The properties are super comfortable, tastefully furnished, fully equipped with all amenities, and they accommodate up to 10 people. So really the only thing you'll need to bring with you is your toothbrush and maybe a change of clothes. They come with fast, unlimited wireless internet, dedicated workspaces, and fully equipped kitchens, and they're just a delight to stay in. Fantastic alternative to Japanese business hotels, which if you've ever stayed in one, you probably know. They're tiny, they're noisy, fine for a night or two if you're on your own, but longer term or with a family, you'll probably feel you're in a jail cell very quickly in a Japanese business hotel. So if you want to give yourself a sense of space and freedom by renting a real home, with comfortable Western beds, including all the necessities like baby bedding, children's toys, high chairs, etc. You definitely want to reach out to Tokyo Family Stays. They've been at it for over a decade. They're a fully licensed minpaku or short-term stay operator. And as a special bonus for our viewers and listeners, they're also throwing in a breakfast basket upon arrival for anyone who books and mentions the Japan Real Estate Podcast or NTI. And not only for guests, if you're a property owner, you've got an investment property that you want to tweak for higher profit, 
or a holiday home that you want to rent out when you're not using it via short-term stays, drop them a line today, see how they can help you maximize your property's income. And again, as a special bonus to our viewers and listeners, they're also offering a free audit of your existing short-term stay listings without any obligation whatsoever. So feel free to reach out to them at tokyofamilystays.com. Well worth a visit. And again, if you're in the market for a family home in or around the Tokyo metropolitan area, Emil's your man. Don't be shy to reach out to him as well at sales at realestate.jp. And now back to the podcast. So I'm like really uh, zoning in on which prefectures and which cities. Don't be laser focused on that because we'll often compare two deals. One of them might seem to be in a better location, but the property profile actually turns out to be much better in the other one. So yeah, yeah. be a little bit at least open-minded. I mean, obviously we're not going to recommend you buy out in the countryside where population is like declining by the day. <laughs> but some of the smaller, medium-sized cities, prefectural capital, satellite cities, the ones that are like bedroom communities to Tokyo, Osaka and so forth, they, they, they offer some very good deals. Actually, I'm. I was actually more interested in those because yeah. I've been c- comparing the the rents, and then uh, well, it's just basically the yields. Uh, it's just it sounds more interesting with the satellite cities. If the rent are similar, just a few few thousand off, but yeah, the price is a lot more expensive in the city compared to how far the rental income rises. But uh, yeah, the only other thing to consider is that. The reason they're so cheap and the reason the yield are attractive is because they're not growing in price. So don't expect any capital growth in those locations, right? Yeah, definitely. To most of our clients, if it's their first deal, we usually recommend to get first one or two properties in maybe a more stable and central location, even if the yield is a bit smaller. Mm-hmm. Once you've established um, an income stream that you can safely rely on, then get more adventurous with maybe the next purchase and the next purchase and so forth. But it's totally a personal risk appetite thing. We just do what you tell us to in the bottom line. <laughs> yeah, uh, I understand. It really depends on every each individual's appetite. Mm. Yeah, some are willing to really roll the dice. Yeah, but definitely I wouldn't buy in central Tokyo, central Osaka. The yields are very, very low there. Yeah, I was actually quite surprised. Uh, so I, I look more, uh, if it's Osaka, it'll be more of new Osaka station and above. Yep. Yeah, that's where uh, I found that the the yield was much is much better. Yeah, suburban Osaka, Kobe City, if you can find something there, is quite attractive. And yeah, uh, I've been looking at Kobe just yesterday. <laughs> yeah. And if it's around Tokyo, um, Yokohama, Chiba City, Saitama City, uh, Kawasaki, yeah. if you're lucky, will all have better yields than Tokyo. Yeah. I've actually been looking around at those as well. Okay. So we're on the same page. That's good. Yeah. Uh, okay. And then to kick going forward, kicking it off, uh, how do we get started? So we can put in a couple of hours of research, but it sounds like you're doing research um, quite well on your own. So you're comfortable. Um, I'm assuming kanji is easy and there's translation. So you're comfortable looking at the uh, MLS websites and potential properties on your own, or do you need us to research for you? Um, I'm comfortable. If you find any gems, uh, do pass them my way. Uh, it's just which other websites do you use? Which other sources? For investment properties, the two main ones that we use are Rakumachi, 
la comachi and kenbia k e n b i y a b i y oh, okay yeah. they're basically geared toward investors so the way the data is structured in the listings uh, is very easy you can immediately see if it's vacant or occupied how much the buildings mm -hmm. are what they i mean don't look at the yield percentages that they quote because they're not very yeah they're very, very gross. They're not really practical. But the numbers will all be there for you to see immediately. So you see the price. You see um, you know, a link to the map. You see the monthly building fees. Mm -hmm. Other websites that are a mix of personal use and investment properties, it just takes a lot more searching to find all that data. Yes. So those two websites will centralize it for you. So what we can do is um, we're, we're happy you know, toing and froing and exchanging emails and giving you our opinion about potential properties, whether you found them or you ask us to find them, that's all fine for us. And we can also put in uh, a couple of hours of specific research to your criteria, just to give you an idea of what we found out there. Sure. Beyond that, once you want us to research more and start conducting due diligence, submitting offers, contacting agents and sellers and so forth, we'll need to be engaged at that point. So sure. that means we need two documents signed and witnessed you mentioned you've got a Hanko. Do you also have a Hanko certificate in Kanchoma? No, actually, Taiwanese don't have a certificate for their Hanko. It's just okay. a Hanko. Okay, so you will need to get them witnessed by a notary public? Whoa, okay. Uh, let me write those. That would be notarized. Would I need to get it notarized by the Japanese embassy? No, any, any notary public will do Okay. So in Japan or anywhere? Uh, anywhere, anywhere. Okay. Are you in Japan at the moment? No, no, no. I'm uh, I'm still in Taipei. I'm planning for my next month's trip to. Okay, I'll be going to Tokyo, Kyoto, and Osaka. Okay. Um, I'm not sure. Maybe check with the Taiwanese um, consulate in Tokyo if they get a readily accessible notary public service there. No, that, I know that, that some of the good. consulates had it, some of them stopped it. Like I can't get it done at the Australian consulate anymore, but I think the US, for example, still do it for um, citizens. So mm -hmm. that might be cheaper. I'm not sure how much Notary Republics cost in Taiwan or if it's easy to find one who can read English, but um, <laughs> it might be cheaper here or there. So maybe look into that. So that's two documents. Um, our contract of services and the power of attorney, the limited power of attorney document that allows us to mm -hmm. represent you here in Japan. So those two need to be signed and witnessed. All right. Should we set a date with Natalia? What's that? Sorry. Should we set a date with Natalia since I'm going to be in Tokyo? A date to what? To, to meet and have a chat? Yeah, you're welcome to. Oh, no, no. For, for the that too, but uh, for the paperwork. Oh, no, I'll send you an email with those two documents and you can just have them printed and signed and witnessed wherever you are. Sure. And then Witness. if you happen to be um, in Tokyo with the documents, then you can just post them to us domestic. Otherwise, just yeah, courier them to us from Taipei. Oh, no, I, I'm just more confused with the witness part. Uh sign and so you you print the documents witness. out and then in, uh -huh. front of, in front of a notary public you sign so then the notary public witnesses your oh. signature so they'll all notarize you yeah they'll identify you with some kind of id document that you bring with you and they'll witness your signature and put a notary public stamp on the document to say that they've officially witnessed your signature and it is indeed you 
Okay, okay. Uh, let me see if Tico, uh, the, the embassy in Taiwan, in Japan, can do it or the. Just Google, uh, or, uh, if you just Google notary public in Taipei in English, you'll find a bunch of them. It's just a matter of which one's cheaper, I think. Okay, sure. Yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll look into that. So that's one thing. I'll reply to the email with those two documents and instructions on how to execute them. So that'll be fairly simple. And then the other thing is we need our fee estimate paid in advance for your first purchase. So if you're assuming the budget is about 10 million yen, we can make it lower if you want. We bill you for the assumed purchase fee based on your assumed budget. Mm -hmm. And then we can start working on your behalf. And post-settlement will credit or debit depending on whatever the end purchase price ends up being. Sure. That sounds about right. <laughs> yeah. So if you want to kick things off, I'll reply to your last email with those two documents. And you can reply to me with a name and address that you want on the invoice. It can be your name or a company name, whatever you want. Sure. And we'll take it from there. All right. Sounds good. Awesome. Looking All forward right. to So you, you're in Tokyo next month, you said, are you? Uh, 27th until the... Oh, wait, 20, 27th until the 3rd. 27 November until 3rd December. Yeah. Okay. Um, my next trip to Tokyo is on in February, so I'm probably not going to be able to catch up unless you're planning a trip to um, Kyushu or anything. No, I was actually thinking about that, but uh, my uh, this time my trip is half business event, so that'll be like the first few days, and then the other, the other half would be family trip. Nice. Yeah, and then of course with my wife, that's Disneyland, and then with my son, that uh, that would be uh, what do you call it, uh, Universal. Oh, very nice. And with my mom, that would be Kyoto because uh, <laughs> memories. All right. Just, um, the fine. tourists are back now, so you can accept ver expect very long lines in Disney and Universal. I think. I'm hoping. Uh, I'm hoping you know November would be a low month. Definitely go on a Monday. Yes, yes, definitely on a Monday yeah. or a Tuesday. All right. So I'll reply to your email with those documents, and we'll take it from there. All right. Thank you very much. Pleasure. Speak to you soon. All right. Bye. So there you have it. Big thanks to Will for allowing us to record these chats we're having with him. I know how much value it brings to many of you folks who are either starting out or already actively investing here in Japan. And if you'd like to be on the podcast, either one-on-one -on -one with me, with the good folks on the Japan Real Estate Experts panel, or even just via video or audio recording that you can send our way as you ask your questions and we answer them here on the program, please don't be shy to reach out via PM or in the comment section or wherever you might have found this episode and we'll make sure to feature you on a future episode. And again, big hug and thank you to everyone who made last week's inaugural Japan Real Estate Summit the success that it was. Um, I know that loose slips uh, sink ships, but I think there may just be another event coming up later this year. Watch this space and stay tuned. Now, before we go, we're also, as always, going to tell you and also link to our other sponsor's website. That's Hiroshi Shimizu, immigration lawyer and administrative scrivener. If you're thinking about moving here on a more permanent basis or you're already in Japan on some sort of a temporary visa and you want to switch to a longer term or permanent one, or if you're considering setting up a local company or a branch office of a foreign company and you've got any sort of business or visa-related inquiries, or even if you just want to find out what your options are on any of these topics, feel free to contact Hiroshi Shimizu. You can find him at japanimmigrationexperts.com. 
and he can help you set up a company, apply for any kind of visa, or just provide you with the best advice and extremely affordable consultation related to these topics. And he's already done that for many of our listeners. So feel free to reach out to him. Again, that's japanimmigrationexperts.com and you'll be well on your way. And that's it from us for today, folks. Hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Japan Real Estate Podcast. Do share it with your networks and please let us know what you think. So leave us a short rating or review on the iTunes store, on Spotify, or just drop us a line in the comment section of wherever you might have found this episode. We love hearing from you. Hope to have you with us again next time. And until then, have a great day or night ahead. Yoroshiku! Yoroshiku!